You're listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast election series. Joining us to talk about his campaign for lieutenant governor in the Democratic primary on September 6th before November's general election, Democratic candidate Brett Biro. Brett Biro currently teaches strategic problem-solving, management consulting, and leading business turnarounds at Babson College. He previously served on the Carlisle Town Finance Committee. He has an extensive background in the business world, starting with his time spent at Digital after earning a master's degree in business administration at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Brett will go on to embark on a 30-year career working with companies to help them improve with roles as both a management consultant and business turnaround leader in a variety of industries, including healthcare, hospitality, hospitality, technology, retail, building supplies, environmental science, finance, manufacturing, and media. Brett, thank you so much for being a part of the program today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Brett, why now? Why do you want to become the next lieutenant governor for the state of Massachusetts? Yeah, it's a good question. So, coming out of the pandemic, while we were in the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, I think the problems that are unique to the situation are very topical. Small businesses were devastated during the pandemic, and that was particularly true in our forgotten towns and our gateway cities. And the challenge that we have is, is there's a lot of good people at the state house, but there's not a lot of people that have a lot of depth and knowledge about small business. So I felt that my expertise from having run a small business for 22 years in Orange, Massachusetts, would be particularly relevant for helping those communities that rely upon small business which is 45% of our workforce, to help launch businesses and get kind of economic revitalization through small businesses. So, So that was the primary reason. And then when I started looking around, I saw a whole bunch of other areas where I felt that people with direct frontline experience could complement rather than duplicate the skill set that already exists in the state house. So for example, I'm on the faculty of Babson College, so I can bring an educator's perspective. I served on the board of an environmental testing company, I can bring an environmental perspective. And so I just felt like the situation has, that we're currently in has unique needs, and I have a skill set that uniquely matches up at this point in time. And so I figured, let's run. And you mentioned your positions um, and your experience on that board as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that background and that unique skill set and what you feel are the skills most relevant to the position as lieutenant governor if you're elected? Yeah, and so the lieutenant governor's role has one official role, which is, is being on the governor's council, which vets judicial appointments, pardons, and things like that. And that's an important role. But really the role of lieutenant governor is, is what one chooses to make of it. And I want to make it as somebody that is responsible for outreach to our communities, uh, both the local governments, as well as as the businesses within the community. Because I think that if we're going to get to economic equality throughout the Commonwealth, we need to have somebody who champions that. There's an orientation that if you're inside the 495 loop and heading east, that, you know, you, you kind of get taken care of by the Boston economy. But if you're outside that 495 loop, you're kind of on your own. You got to build it out yourself. And I don't think that there's anybody there who's had in the state house who's had any significant experience doing that. Let me give you a, a specific example. When I started my little business, uh, uh, Echo Industries, which is based in Orange, since sold it, but it's still there. 
I had three five-year plans. The first five-year plan was buy it, pay down the debt. The second five-year plan was invest, build a new factory, buy some new equipment, relocate the business, get it more efficient, more profitable, more successful. And then the third five-year plan was grow it, grow revenues. We got through the first one without a problem. The second one, it was really hard to find help from the state house. We did get a little bit of tax incentive financing, but there was nobody could really kind of guide you through the maze of the bureaucracy to get a business launched. And I just think that entrepreneurs aren't used to dealing with the government. And there's this general lack of knowledge of how to get started and where to go and how to get help. And I think the lieutenant governor's office can provide a lot of that. So that's, you know, that's some of the unique skills that I can bring. On top of that, just having met a payroll, having dealt with the sort of business challenges, you can see a different and bring a different perspective to the table when satisfying issues. One simple example is during the pandemic, there was this great need for personal protection equipment. And there was a couple of Massachusetts businesses that stopped everything else they were doing to just make PPE. And they built up a large store of it. And the state was buying it right up until the time that there was a glut of it, at which point they said, you know what, we're not going to buy it from you anymore. We're going to buy it from a cheaper stores. And I think that's hurting Massachusetts businesses that have gone out to, to do something significant there. And I just think that somebody from the business community would have said, look, at least buy all the inventory that they have. Help them out. They helped us out. Let's help them out to be successful. So it's a perspective as much as any unique skill set. But having the having run the businesses, you, you do bring a different level of knowledge to the table. As you mentioned, you're a business owner out in Orange, Mass, in north central Massachusetts. So you know what the climate is like out here. You know uh, we have not yet reached our full economic potential here in Fitchburg and Lemonster and Gardner and some of these other smaller communities around the region. Um, in addition to bringing more knowledge and awareness about how government works and how government interacts for that group outside that 495 belt, if you're elected, what would you recommend the administration does to bring everyone outside that 495 belt more into the fold and into that same economic success and um, economic development potential? Yeah, so that's an excellent question, and, and it's where I really have been trying to focus my attention. So uh, when I was at Babson, as I've been at Babson, I worked on an organization called Scottish Enterprises, which is from the government of Scotland. And it is a private-public partnership that provides money for business people and entrepreneurs to start businesses in return for receiving a certain commitment to putting a certain number of jobs in place and investing in the community but they also then skill up the executives that they give those, those monies to so that they don't fail, right? It, it doesn't help to launch a business that's gonna fail in a year. We want the businesses to be successful. So my orientation is, is that if you look at Central Mass, most of the new business starts come from people who already live in Central Mass. They're not people that are moving from Boston necessarily out to say Orange to start a business. They're people that instead come from that community and say, hey, we need this. Let's create a business here. So they don't necessarily have access to small amount of capital, whether it's a, a grant or a small loan. And I'm talking about in, in incredibly small amounts, five, ten thousand dollars so that they can buy their first round of inventory. They can get their first month lease for their facility. They can hire a few employees and get a start. And then once that's done, how do we support them with, for example, incubation centers or innovation centers out in uh, 
the Berkshires, there's a Berkshire Innovation Center that's been established where entrepreneurs can go to work with other entrepreneurs and have a space to explore. And some of the equipment that they need for R&D is, is right in that center, and the state su supports that. We could do the same thing in central Middlesex, uh, northern central Middlesex. And I think that's something that we need to invest in. And so I see the, the role of the lieutenant governors is going out, talking to the community leaders, talking to the business leaders, and really understanding their unique needs. Because frankly, the needs in Orange, Massachusetts are distinctly different from the needs in Cambridge, which are distinctly different, say, than Cape Cod. And so we need to develop a solution that works for North Central uh, Mass. Earlier in the podcast, you talked about the administration's handling of PPE. When it comes to handling the rest of the pandemic, how would you say the administration has handled the pandemic and what do you think needs to be done differently? Yeah, sure. So I think that's an excellent question because I, I think we need to recognize, and I'm going to answer the question about the pandemic in a second, but we're moving from a pandemic to the point where COVID is now going to be endemic in our life. And so we're, we are going to have future waves of COVID in various forms. And so we, we do need to learn the lessons from it. I will say about the administration that it, it started poorly, but it did end fairly well. When we started the website that they set up for identifying where you can get a vaccination uh, was poorly organized and it crashed frequently. And I know my parents who live out on Cape Cod, we had to drive them two hours when they finally found the spot to get a vaccination and then two hours back and it wasn't on the same day. And so it was, it, it was a rough start. We didn't take care of teachers, for example, that would be interacting with the students. We didn't deem them the equivalent of first responders in terms of their interaction with the public and get them things. So there was a risk of spreading at the schools. The Holyoke Soldiers Home, of course, was a disaster. And so th there was a lot to fault there. But in fairness to the administration, it, it was also a pandemic. We, we have no history of how to deal with that. And I will say that they learned pretty well. And by the end, you know, we're one of the highest vaccinated states. The mask mandates were put in when appropriate. And now as, as they start to ease off as we're coming out of the Omicron uh, variant wave, I, I, I think they've done a good job recently in getting there. But there's a lot of lessons learned that we can apply. The biggest one to me is the fact that when you go into a downturn like that, you can't just lock the doors 100%. There are businesses that if you do that will go under and create economic hardship. Now, the government did have the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program, that allowed some small businesses to survive. But many businesses in the retail industry, in the hospitality industry, they were incredibly hard hit by it. And we need to do a better job of working with those businesses to figure out how to help them be successful. So for example, Restaurants, can we take outdoor dining and help them buy heaters so that you can run the restaurant through, say, November uh, with global uh, climate change, right? Global warming. We could probably even go into December now. But how can we help those businesses be successful while we're in it? Yes, it is a healthcare crisis that created an economic crisis, but you need to respond to both. You can't just say, oh, I'm only going to address the healthcare crisis. You also have to respond to the economic crisis at the same time. And when you look at the economic crisis, um, you know, there are some businesses that have been harder hit than others, especially among underserved populations. As you look towards recovery and dealing with it, as you mentioned, it's going to be an endemic. How do we 
ensure that there's equitable recovery for businesses and residents in North Central Massachusetts, especially among some of our underserved and diverse populations. Yeah, and so the state has always promised set-asides, right? Whether it's women, whether it's people of color, communities of color, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's economic, uh, the economic uh, success of an area. And yet when we seem to distribute the money, no matter what we promise ahead of time, it seems to not be equal. I think there's two things that we need on that. One is this complete transparency so everybody can see where the dollars are going. Frankly, we haven't been that good at that coming out of the pandemic. Uh, the, it, a lot of that ARPA money that the federal government is sending to us was you know, decided while the state house was closed and in informal session. So we don't exactly see where the votes were to support that. But on top of that, I think we need an active outreach. I think we need a specific strategy to say, let's invest in the areas that need it the most, right? A North Central Middlesex area. The Orange Athol area has been, you know, uniquely challenged uh, since, uh, well, frankly, for a while in terms of the economic recovery that's been there. So that's an area that should receive more of our funds, not less of it. It shouldn't be everybody gets the same amount. That's kind of a quality of distribution. What we're looking for is, is a quality of outcome. We're looking for investing in those areas that need the most help. And I think that's part of the role of Lieutenant Governor is, is being a not, not so much a cheerleader, but an advocate for those areas and helping them get the support that they need. Because frankly, it's a question of political leadership. It's not a question of people don't know. It's a question of, are we willing to go and get the resources that those communities need to be successful. As a person who was in the North Central Middlesex area for 22 years, and my dad owned a business there uh, for 10 years, you know, that's something, that's an area that has been part of my family for the, you know, better part of three decades. So it's, uh, it's something that I care passionately about. I know you're very passionate about business, as you mentioned, you know, supporting businesses is going to be a huge priority. You'll be an advocate for businesses uh, if you're elected. The pandemic has exacerbated um, issues with businesses that sometimes existed beforehand. One of those having to do with the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund. Uh, this yeah. trust fund was facing issues beforehand. Really, the pandemic highlighted some of these longstanding issues with it. The government did send ARPA funds towards it um, almost as a Band-Aid. But what would you propose as a long-term solution yeah, and, and look, uh, when I owned my business, which was uh, admittedly pre-pandemic, it seemed like every year we contributed to it. And other than I want to say when we lost a significant client, our largest client to an overseas competitor that was able to deliver the product for less than we can buy the raw materials after President Bush put in a steel tariff, uh, you know, there was a very brief period of time where we had to access that and help our workers. Fortunately, we were able to replace that business and climb back. But, it, you know, there was a brief period of time where there was an impact on people. And it seemed like I didn't get back what I contributed as a business to that fund. And so we need to do a better job on that. I recognize that there's a compelling need for the fund. Nobody argues that. The issue is, is that if you always rely on business to do it, it gets so expensive that businesses make a decision, you know, it'd be better to put the business in New Hampshire. It'd be better to put the business in Vermont or somewhere else where it's more affordable. I know when I built our factory, we, we built our new factory in roughly the 2000, 2001 timeframe. You know, there was communities up in New Hampshire saying, hey, bring it up here. 
I felt that the business had been in orange for a long time. It deserved to stay in orange. I liked our employees, the skill set they brought, and I didn't want to un- uh, put them out of work. And so, you know, I stayed there. But I did it despite the fact that there's a cost. I think we have to have a mental mindset, particularly in those communities that face greater economic challenges, that you cannot put all the burden on the businesses to support us, particularly the small businesses, right? My business employed 10 people. You know, it, it, it is not going to be a major employer, but for those 10 people, it's their paycheck. So it's an important job for them. And if you keep putting fees on top of those businesses, it gets so that they make decisions that it's easier to go out of state than stay in state. So I don't think there's any magic wand that we can wave to make the challenge of providing unemployment insurance, which you know was critical during the pandemic. I don't think there's anything that makes that go away, but I think that when it comes time to allocate, and the issue at the Commonwealth right now is not the issue of having funds. We're awash in funds for the first time ever from because of the federal government. It's making the decisions on how you allocate it. And I think we ought to allocate more to supporting our entrepreneurs and small business people. As we work to support our business people and our small businesses and our entrepreneurs, the great resignation is continuing to 2022. North Central Massachusetts, really all the Commonwealth facing a tight labor market. How would you recommend the next administration go about addressing challenges to the labor market? Yeah, it's an interesting problem, this great resignation. And and it is something that we need to solve. On the one hand, we have a low unemployment rate. On the other hand, We have lower employment than we had before the pandemic because so many people have stopped working altogether. Now, I get that somewhat. So if you're in a job where you're getting, you know, frankly, uh, burned out and abused by uh, people in a COVID environment, you make a decision. It's not worth it for me. And it's it's easier to just stop working. And And that certainly has happened somewhat. But at the end of the day, Massachusetts' basis of competition is our workforce. We have an incredibly resilient workforce, a fairly educated workforce. And by educated, I don't necessarily mean a four-year college degree, whether it's community colleges, whether it's vocational colleges, whether it's just a basic high school degree. Our people, our, our citizens are better educated than the citizens of any other state. We need to continue to invest in that workforce to be successful. And so I think a big piece of what the state needs to do is ensure that we have quality education. And in my mind, quality education is also providing things like vocational colleges uh, and vocational high schools so that people can go out and learn the skills that they want to apply their life towards doing. A four-year college is great. I certainly have one, and I'm not going to argue that against anybody who makes that decision. But we also know that student loans are really large, and the return on that investment versus going and getting, for example, an electrician's license or a plumbing license, you know, you can make a good living in those jobs if you've got the right education and skill to do it. And so I think we have to invest heavily in the concept of skilling up our workforce because that is ultimately our basis for competition. And when it comes to competing, uh, Massachusetts faces stiff competition when it comes to the area of tourism. You've got a number of states around us that are competing for a lot of the same tourism dollars. And despite the fact that tourism is the third largest industry in the state, Massachusetts often falls near the bottom of the pack when it comes to investment in tourism. 
how would you help the North Central Massachusetts region and the state better capitalize on tourism to better compete with other states? Yeah. So the North Central Massachusetts is a beautiful area. You know, I would drive through it and you, you look at it and, it and it just is scenically beautiful. Um, we could do more in that area. If you're a sportsman, there's things that we can do. If you're a nature lover, hiking, uh, skiing, things of that nature. We, we could be doing more things that fall into the category of, uh, lack of a better word, entertainment, right? Which is a form of tourism. So, so we should promote that more. It's always interesting to me when I sit and watch the TV and I'm getting ads for come visit New York, come visit Ohio, come visit California, come visit Florida. I don't know that we do a lot to support our tourism industry. I know that tourism, to your point, is a significant feature. I actually, uh, as a kid, grew up in the small town of Concord, Mass, and we had the Old North Bridge, and we had the authors, and you know there was a lot of tourism there. And yet, I don't really know that other than the bicentennial of the fight at Concord, I don't know that there was really a ton of visitors that came to Concord from that. So I don't think that we really do enough to sponsor and support that. I think that's something that we should invest more in. And I think that's statewide. But I think the interesting thing is, is each area of the Commonwealth has something to offer. The challenge is as to how do we promote those uh, different diverse areas and make them productive for that community. How would your administration, if you're elected, use transportation investments to improve access for North Central Massachusetts and other underserved regions of the state? Con congestion on Route 2 as uh, an issue in the region. Lack of transportation is also a big barrier for many for employment. So what would you recommend that the state do differently when it comes to handling transportation? Yeah, so, so when we talk about transportation, everybody thinks of the uh, metro rail inside of the 128 loop or the 495 loop bringing people into Boston. We do have some regional transportation systems, but you know, North Central Middlesex doesn't have a lot. At a bare minimum, we need a better bus system that can get people around. And I gotta tell you, so when I would drive out on Route 2, it would go from a divided highway to, you know, single lane in either direction before I could get to the exit to Orange where my factory was. And that does have an impact in terms of your ability to ship product, frankly, and have people pick up. But it's also an issue, as you correctly point out, for the workers. I do think that those should not be viewed as, as expenses. They should be viewed as investments. If we want to address the great resignation, the earlier point that you brought up, then we have to make it easier for people to work. One of the ways that we make it easier for people to work is to help them get to work. And the more that we can use mass transit, we're addressing multiple challenges at the same time. First, transportation is the leading so source of climate change in Massachusetts. So mass transit helps that out. Second of all, um, when we have mass transit, you can live further from where you work, and so affordable housing becomes an easier challenge. And then third, the critical, the most important, is if you can't get to a job, you can't have a job. And so the ability to invest in mass transit, bus systems, uh, is helpful. Should we have rail that goes to the east, to Boston, and down to Worcester, and out to Springfield, 
Yeah, sure. I, I, I'm for all of that. Although there's an investment that's required for that. So how we sequence that and how we land that is important. And we don't want to destroy the nature of the community that exists while we do that. Right now, uh, one of my competitors is correctly pointing out that there's going to be east-west rail from Springfield to Boston. Well, that's great if you're on that rail path. But if you're not, how do you get to that rail path? Do we have a means to get you there in a timely, efficient manner? And if not, then what do you do? So I think that when we address transportation, it is not an, an Eastern Massachusetts challenge. It is a Commonwealth-wide transportation. I know in Orange that I was fortunate that the uh, town would actually have a bus service to pick up employees and bring them to uh, our place of employment. And then at their end of the shift, pick them up and take them back to their house. And I can see that that made their life easier. I think that's a great thing. We should be investing more in that. So I'm, I'm a huge supporter of investing in transportation and infrastructure. I will also say that if you go back and look at GDP growth, this is at the nation, national level, not the state level. But if you look at GDP growth, it's closely correlated to investment in infrastructure. The more we invest, the more we make transportation more affordable, the more economic growth we can get. So to me, it's not an expense. It's an investment we make in our future. When you hear the word transportation, another uh, word that often comes up is climate change. If you're elected, how would you recommend the administration approach the goals of reaching that net zero emissions by 2050? Is that the right approach or should the administration be doing something different? Well, so look, climate change is an existential threat. You, all we have to do is, is watch the, the nightly news. And it's not just in Massachusetts. It's not just in America. It's worldwide. There's a whole host of issues, water shortages, uh, uh, temperature change that's leading to massive immigration. There's a whole host of problems that are being driven by climate change. And so we do need to address it if we want to have a future for our planet. It won't affect me as much as it'll affect my grandkids, but, but we have to address it. The great news for Massachusetts is we have an opportunity to be a leader in the renewable and alternative energy industry. We have two deep water ports in Fall River and New Bedford that would be perfect for providing offshore wind. And as all you have to do is watch the news, we got a lot of offshore wind. It's actually one of the areas where, it, where there is, is the most wind that can be captured. And so we need to do that. Solar arrays, you know, if I go into central Massachusetts, there's large swaths that could be, have solar energy systems put in place there so to help address the energy needs out there. So, so I think those are all critically important. I think though that we also need to continue to experiment with alternatives to just solar and wind. I think there's a whole host of new ideas that are being incubated in our university system whether that's MIT or UMass or the Berkshire Innovation Center, frankly, that is going to come up with new ideas of how to use energy and how to store energy. Battery power will get longer and that will have a better impact on our energy demand. So I think there's a whole host of things that we need to do. What we can't do is say it doesn't exist and put our heads in the sand. I think we should mandate that any sort of new buildings should be much more energy efficient. I'm okay with the concept of moving away from fossil fuel burners and putting in new systems for all new constructions. I'm great with providing financial incentives to do that. B2 
Because if we really do believe that climate change needs to be addressed, and I do, then that's an investment we should be willing to make. And curiously enough, when we make it, I think we're also creating brand new industries. Because if I am swapping out fossil fuel furnaces and replacing them with whatever the alternative energy uh, equivalent of the furnace is going to be, then I need the technicians, the HVAC technicians, to be educated and create businesses to do that. So there's, there's an opportunity for future economic growth from this. When you look at Texas, everybody thinks of Texas as the leading oil producer in the nation, but it's got more green energy jobs than it has oil jobs down there. Climate change and renewable and alternative energy is not just an expense we have to bear. It is an economic opportunity. Massachusetts should be a leader in that area. We should be aggressive in moving forward. You know, frankly, I'm not sure that we should be waiting till 2050. The longer we delay it, the longer it takes for us to get serious about it. I think we should start sooner and do more. And things like mass transit are a step in addressing climate change. So it's a complex subject for sure, but it's as much holding our political leaders accountable for coming up with a plan and delivering that plan as it is with coming up with new technologies to execute on it. Now, Brett, I am going to put you on the clock right now because if you had 60 seconds to convince our listeners why you should have their vote for the September primary to become the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor, what would you say starting right now? Sure. So my fundamental belief is that the lieutenant governor's skill and experience should complement, not replicate that of the governor. It's important that we have somebody who has direct first-line experience addressing these issues, somebody that brings a new and needed perspective, somebody who does have local government experience so that they understand what's required at the local level, but somebody who can help address the significant challenge of moving the Commonwealth forward on an economic basis. And that's what I bring to the table. I'm distinctly different from the other candidates in that I'm the only person whose career has been from the private sector. And for listeners that want more information on your campaign for as a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, where can they go? So the best place is my website, www.brettbero.com, and that's spelled B-R-E-T-B-E-R-O, one word, dot com. This has been another election series episode of the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. I'd like to thank Brett Bureau for taking the time to talk to us today about his platform as a Democratic candidate in the race for lieutenant governor. The primary is scheduled for September 6th and the general election is slated for November 8th. Brett, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And hello, everybody out there in Central Mass. You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.